see that I just drove right on by him. What do I care what happened here? Um, but the older I get, the more I care. You know what I think? Uh, I think when you're in school, like you boys are, I think what they ought to do is really put you on a bus and take a six-week tour around all America. How would you like that? That'd be better than history class, wouldn't it? Yeah, take you to Gettysburg. There's nothing like standing in Gettysburg and looking across that that field that the great battle took place on, where you can see the the leaders of both sides, Grant and Lee, on their horses. And uh, it just becomes such a sacred place. Uh, when I was at the Alamo, I, I remember standing there at the base of that wall thinking, I'm standing where blood was shed. This is a sacred place because of the blood that was shed. And uh, they tell me that when uh, presidents and people have went to Normandy, they stand there and just about shudder because of the great sacrifice that was made. These monuments are important. And I now pull over because I've got older and I pull over and I read what significant thing happened here. Well, in a like manner, the Bible says throughout it that Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and the people of God throughout eternity, Israel, when something significant happened, built a what the Bible said, a great stone. And if you were going to the land of Israel today and have an historic tour, they would point out these great, Galdols or Galdol, the great stones, and they would say something significant happened here, and they would tell you why. Now, in most of them, it's not inscribed, but the generation upon generation have lived and told the significance of that stone. I remember when I was a kid, a youngster, we would go visit Grandma and Grandpa Gary. And we would uh, drive down this road, and we come to this dead end of this, the end of this T, the road, and there was a T, and right ahead was a great stone. I mean, it would, to me, at that day, it probably wasn't that big, but for me, as a child, it looked like the size of a house. And I always wondered, where in the world did that stone come from? And I always thought, wonder what would happen to the person who missed the stop sign and went through and hit that rock, that big stone. Well, you can only imagine. We I'd like to this morning look at four places in the Old Testament where a great stone was lifted up and what happened at that stone and then show the analogy in our own lives. Take your Bible and turn to Genesis 28 for the first one. Genesis 28. The story here is about Jacob. Jacob was born to Isaac. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. They had a battle being born. And uh, Esau was a hunter, and Jacob was mommy's boy. Uh, Jacob did uh, stayed in, in home and, and helped mom do the cooking, and Esau went out in the field and killed the deer. And uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't mind going out in the kill, field and kill the deer. I just wouldn't want to have the spirit of Esau, nor would I want to be as hairy as Esau. But anyhow, that's just the way it goes. Jacob had deceived his father with his mother's help. You know the story. Esau, being the firstborn, uh, wanted the blessing. And his mother wanted Jacob to have the blessing. And God, they they got the blessing, and that was God's plan, but it was done in the wrong way. Often, 
we want to manipulate how God does what He does. Well, anyhow, Jacob stole the blessing, and now his brother wants to kill him. Being that he's a hunter, he probably could do it. And Jacob got scared, his mother got scared, and sent him away. And we pick it up in verse 10. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And uh, let me just explain that when you go from here to over Uncle Laban's, you can't just go across. Even the United States Army doesn't go across. You have to go up through Syria, up into Haran, and then come back down through by the rivers into Babylon. And that's where he was headed. Well, he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. Now, in the King James Version, I'm using the New King James, it says he put it as a pillow. And that always made no sense to me, because why would anybody use a rock for a pillow? And he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, what he meant there, what it means is that Jacob was scared enough so that he got some rocks and he built himself a little fortress. And at his head, he got a big rock and he put it there so that it would protect him as he slept. Can you can imagine this mama's boy, the first night out in the desert, traveling all by himself, hearing the coyotes or whatever was howling, and hearing all the noises of the dark, he was probably petrified. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there was angels of God descending and ascending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to the land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, Isn't it wonderful that God keeps His promises even though sometimes we are disobedient? Jacob was wrong. Jacob really, I don't believe, knew the Lord. He was raised in that home. And and he's out here running for his life. and, And he stops at this place and he was petrified of the animals and all of that was there. And he didn't know God was there. And in verse 17, he said, I was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the what? The house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Now, it's interesting. If you go back on Bethel to Genesis 12, you're going to find that when Abraham came into this very land, from the very place of Babylon, that this is the place he stopped and he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. He worshipped God in this very place. Now, here is his grandson running from his brother. And where does he stop? Where does God direct him? But to the very place that Abraham had called upon the name of the Lord, Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And Jacob, I believe, this is the time in his life when he came to really know God. He said, I didn't even know God was here. And then he says, God is here. This is none other than the place of God. This is where God dwells. And what did he do? 
He took the rock that he had depended on for his protection, and now he sets it up and he worships God and he pours oil upon it, sanctifies it, separates it apart, and said, this is a significant place in my life. Now, I'm not going to go there this morning, but if you were to take and do a study on Bethel, you would find out this is a place that Jacob comes back to, comes back to, comes back to, comes back to, and great things happen in this place. By the way, you may be here this morning, and you have never had a meeting with God. You're living your life along, you're doing what you do, but you have never truly had an encounter with God. My first encounter with God was when I was six years old. Or five years old, excuse me. Five years old. I had been at Bethel. I had been in the house of God. The house of God had brought two evangelists in. And they sang together. One preached and the other took a chalk and did a chalk drawing. And he did a chalk drawing of the three crosses. And it became vividly clear to me that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sin. The only problem is I was confused. I thought that if I didn't accept Jesus, I would have to die on a cross to go to heaven. I didn't like that as a five-year-old boy. wasn't bad. So I came home from kindergarten that day, and I remember talking to my mother about this confusion. And she laid out for me exactly the truth that I could die on a thousand crosses, but that wouldn't save me. That I had to trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross of Calvary. And there in that, that day, by myself in my room, I got down next to my bed, And there I met with God, and I was gloriously saved. It was kind of neat. About seven years ago, I was preaching in Corning, New York, and all my brothers were there. I have three other brothers, three brothers. And we were there, and I was speaking, and I said, Hey, guys, we're ten miles from our homestead that my parents had left in 1972 to go into missions. I said, Let's go up and see if we can get in the house, if a lady would let us in. And uh, because... We knew how to break in. but um, So we went up to the house and went to, we went to the back door and thinking nothing of it. That's where we always went. We never went to the front door. Who goes to the front door, right? So we went there and knocked, and here's four guys standing. This lady comes. She's a little petrified. And I go, hey, where are the little boys? He goes, oh, David, Nancy, Mary, John, Steve, Gary, Jeannie, and Char. How did you know that? It's on the hooks going down in the basement where we hung our coats. So... Well, anyhow, we went in the house, and the funniest thing about that house was, it, when I was growing up, it was big, but when I went back to visit it, it was really tiny. It's the weirdest thing when you go back to your homestead. But when we were walking down the hall from the back door, we walked by the bathroom, and I said, boy, there is a sacred place for me. And she goes, what? And I go, well, the bathroom when I was here was outdoors. And I said, that was my bedroom. And right there, I knelt down beside my bed and accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And she said, praise the Lord. And I said, oh, you're a believer. She says, I am. I said, boy, that's very, very precious to me. Some of you are, and most of you are sitting here thinking right now of that sacred place where you met with God. But there may be some of you sitting here, you can't remember a place. You can't remember a time where God really met with you and wrestled with your soul, and you bowed humbly before Him and received the gift of eternal life. You know, wouldn't it be great today, on the 25th of October, 2009, that you could set up a pillar that right in this place, 
you came to Christ. That's what Jacob did. And every one of us ought to have that place, that pillar in our life. I welcome you to turn to Deuteronomy 27. We'll see another place that they set up a pillar. Deuteronomy 27. The people of God are now prepared to go into the promised land. They have been through the wilderness experience. They're still in the wilderness, but Moses giving clear instructions on moving into the promised land. And Moses, verse 1, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and whitewash them with lime. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses said to the priests and the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe His commandments and His statutes, which I command you to this day. You know, here's a people of God. They are, they are God's chosen ones. They are entering into a new land. They are entering into a land where there lives the worldly people, the people, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Moabites, Philistine people, people that worship Baals and idols, people that have their stones, which are not real gods. They're false gods. They're fertility gods. They trust in these false gods, these bales, for the things that are most critical to life. What does God want the people of God to do? He wants them to erect an altar, whitewash it, and then carve into that altar the Ten Commandments. And He says in another place, I want it so that when somebody passes by, they'll say, what is that? And they'll say, that's the Word of the law of God. That's the Word of God. That's what we believe. And they want you to tell your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, this is a place where God separated the water. This is a place where God gave us victory. This is a place where God did something significant for us. And this is why. Because this is what we believe. And we live in a day today where what you believe is not really very important. It's, we want to, we want to, it's interesting in religious circles, we want to minimize the doctrinal statement. We want to take and put the least amount of doctrine in a statement so it doesn't offend, it offends the least amount of people. And we want to take and get people, a crowd, 
And we want the people to come into our services, but we don't want to say too much that would bother them, so we lose them. But God said the opposite. God said, when you go into the land and where you're among the worldly, I want you to take and make a stand for me. I want you to make a statement for me that this is our God. We are His people, and we're not ashamed of His law. Today, it's getting harder and harder to preach. Our pastor, I heard, I met with him Tuesday, my pastor, where I attend church. He's been preaching on the Ten Commandments, this very thing that they were going to write. And he was preaching last Sunday on the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. And he was dealing with this issue of the killing of a children and abortion. And he was dealing with the issue of killing by euthanasia, people providing suicide. And I just heard it this, this, this uh, week on a, that another country is, is legalizing suicide so that when you get to a certain age and you don't really want to live any longer, you might be healthy but you don't want to live any longer, it's you have the right to end your life. That's killing yourself. And he went on to a lot of the other issues that we're facing in our day today. But we don't like to say those things in most circles. We don't want to say that living together is adultery or fornication. We don't even want to call people that are living with the same sex, we don't want to call them what they are. We want to say they're gay. We don't want to offend anybody. We can't even talk about them in some circles without and be politically correct. But when the people of God meet with God, God is, wants us not to be ashamed of what we believe. You know, it's interesting as I travel the country that more and more and more pastors are saying this. People don't mind coming to church sometimes, but they will not follow through with baptism and membership because they do not want to make a commitment. Well, I want to say to you, when God chose His people, He made a commitment to them, and He expected them to make a commitment back to Him. And He wanted them to set up a statement that said, this is our God, and this is what we believe, and we're not ashamed of it. And I want to ask you today, are you ashamed of what you believe? You know, some I remember when I was in high school, I went to a public high school, and I remember everybody in our youth group was encouraged to take and carry their Bible on the top of their books, not stuck in the middle of their books so nobody would see it. And I remember taking my Bible, and I'm not sure that was any spiritual venture, uh, but it was a statement that challenged us, would we be ashamed to carry our Bible in a worldly setting? Are you ashamed to bow your head in a restaurant and pray? I would assume that most of you in this room are not. But what if you're with a bunch of men and you're out on work and the rest of them are not believers? Are you ashamed to thank God? Or would you say to the men, men, I love the Lord and He's provided us this job and I'd just like to thank the Lord for it. Could you, would you mind joining with me in prayer? When we do things like that, it's just like setting up a great stone and saying... This is my God, and this is what I believe, and I'm not ashamed of it. In declaring to the whole world that I'm a believer. And then as people pass by that great stone, and they see your statement, they'll say, I want to tell you about that person. They really believe God. 
They really know God. Are you here and a believer but never been baptized, never taken a public stand and said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? He died for me and I'll do anything for Him? That's what this rock means. A statement of who I am and what I believe. Now, we have a great stone. I met God. We have a great stone. I stand for God. Let's look at this one. Joshua 24. Joshua now is coming to the end of his life. It's kind of interesting. These people are... These, this one and the last one, they were coming to the end of their life and they were setting up great stones. I think when we come to the end of our life, we want to leave something that lets people know where we are. And Joshua is here coming to the end of his life. Moses before, now Joshua. And Joshua is reiterating with the people of God, beginning with verse 15, about this matter of serving the Lord. They're in the land now. They've set up that great stone and put the Ten Commandments on. Now he said, are you going to serve this God? In verse 15, it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. Choose yours this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I remember when I was a kid, that my mother had placed that plaque right in the bathroom, right on the wall, and we all saw it all the time. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Be it far from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like all of us? Well, we wouldn't even think of such a thing. For the Lord our God is He who brought us up our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went into among the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn to you from harm and consume you after he has done you good. He's saying, you say easily we will serve the Lord. You don't know what that means. You are going to be tried and tested on every side. Last Sunday I was preaching in Wellington, Ohio. It was real close to my home. I had a Sunday free and this pastor wanted me to come, so I said I can do that. And he told me before the service, he said, there's going to be a young lady, a college-aged young lady, come forward this morning, probably. And she has really got herself into a lot of sin and issues. But during communion the other night, she really came under tremendous conviction. And she has been counseling with us. And she wants to come before the church and just declare by her coming forward that she has recommitted her life to Jesus Christ and found forgiveness. And she did come forward. But I walked up to that young lady afterwards and I said, you know, the greatest trial of your life will now come because once you make your stand, the devil will do everything in his power to discourage you and defeat you and bring you down. I said to David Whipple, I'll show you a picture of him tonight. He's our new vice president and he handles our administrative affairs. Administrative Vice President. But he owned a construction company. And uh, he was a very competent, 
a well-to-do man. Uh, he had a passion for God. He was on our board. And uh, when Dan Hargrave, who was from Iowa, had to come back to take care of his parents and wasn't able to serve with us, David came to me and he said, you know, I'm willing to serve if, that, if you need me, if you want me. I'll close my business down and I'll come and, and help you out. And he chose to do that and I chose to allow him and have him come. But I said to him, David, once you make this decision, God, God's going to test you. It often happens that way. I've watched it so many times. God will test you to see if you're genuine, if you really believe that. And you're interesting, right after he made that decision, he woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, one morning with a tremendous burning in his throat. And he knew there was something seriously wrong with him. And his father had just been through an aorta um, collapse. His aorta was flaking off and coming apart. And he had just barely made it through. And David said, man, I wonder if I'm going through the same thing my father had. He rushed him to the hospital. They put him on a helicopter and rushed him to a big hospital. And a doctor drove 100 mile an hour and got there just in time as his aorta was ready to explode. And they put a plastic valve in and a plastic tube and, 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 and he made it through it. Well, the doctor that saved him asked him to build him a house. And he said, I can't, I'm moving. But Dan was able to stay a little longer, so David said, I'll build you that house. And the doctor wanted a certain kind of house. He wanted all pine. So they had had built this whole house, and they were ready to put a 30,000 board foot of pine in the inside of this house, and they were getting ready to do that. And they left work that night at 5.30, and at 7.30, the whole house was in the basement, burned right to nothing. And David said, I stood there and I cried. And David never shows any emotion. He said, I cried and I just said, God, what are you doing? I'm supposed to not even be here. And here I do something that I thought was the right thing to do. And now we have to start all over again. He takes a vacation right after that and takes his three four-wheelers and goes down into Tennessee. And and he wakes up one morning and somebody stole the trailer and all the four-wheelers. And he's beginning to wonder... Whoa. And I called him up and I said, David, remember I told you that God would test you. And I'm just so glad to tell you that David passed the test with flying colors. You know, it's easy to come to church. It's easy in a service to say, I will serve you. I remember when I was 14 years old, I was sitting in this side of the auditorium I got saved when I was five. I was sitting over on this side of the auditorium. I was going to go forward one Sunday morning, and I was talking to you in Sunday school about how God's working. That morning, nobody else knew it, but nine years old, I felt like I should go forward and confess Christ publicly and ask to be baptized. And the pastor didn't give an invitation. I made a mistake of telling my father on the way home, so he called the pastor that afternoon and said, if you give an invitation tonight, you'll have one. And... Then the problem was I had to think about it all afternoon and all evening because I knew he was going to give a invitation. I had to go forward. And so I went down that aisle. I remember crying. And I met my family doctor who was a deacon. And the only thing he'd ever done to me is hurt me. And uh, <laughs> so I was petrified then. I was over here when I was 14. And I remember the missionary that came and spoke. And that day God worked in my life. And I said, I'm going to go forward and say, I'll do anything for you, Lord. When I was 16, I found out how much that would cost me. There was four of us guys in high school, and we were buddies. 
Every afternoon, every lunch hour at that time, you could leave the public school and walk downtown to the pizza shop and get whatever you wanted to eat. Or you'd go to the cafeteria. We'd go and walk. And, and we were all in Boys Brigade. That was a program years ago. And we were all supposedly Christians. Only problem, we went to a conference, a Christian conference for Boys Brigade. And on the way home, we were sitting overnight in New York City because we missed our train. And, and those guys went off and all of a sudden I realized these three guys, they have no interest in spiritual things. They're more interested in smoking and drinking and running around. And on the way home, uh, they were drinking. I mean, I, I, I am shocked. We're at a Christian conference. We're on the way home, and they're sneaking drinks. And I'll never forget the moment in my life, and I had to sit there in school and think, am I going to follow these three guys and be in the crowd, or am I going to serve the Lord? That sense of loneliness as a teenager is haunting. I'm so glad God helped me to choose. Today, I will serve the Lord. Those three are gone. They don't have anything. Most of them have lost their families. But God has blessed me beyond measure. That day, I set up a rock. That day I set up a, a galdol, a great stone, and said, As for me, I will serve the Lord. Now, we in Baptist circles and in fundamental circles, we don't believe in a second blessing. We don't believe you have to do something after salvation to get more. But there is a sense I have watched it in Christian circles, in our circles, and I've watched it over the many years of pastoring that you accept the Lord, you step out for the Lord, you live for the Lord, but there comes a point in your life when you are really challenged. Am I going to serve the Lord? Is everything in my life going to be about God? The way I do business, the way I conduct myself in the community, the way I serve in the church, is my life going to be about me or God? This statement is what Joshua was asking him. Who's life really about? I have a message called a two-kingdom man or a one-kingdom man. If you're a one-kingdom man, your only kingdom is God's. If you're a two-kingdom man, you got your kingdom and God's kingdom and you're, at times, allowing God to request from your kingdom, and then you make the decision. So who's king of the kingdom? You are. And I would just encourage you to think through this whole issue. Am I really serving God, or am I king of my kingdom, and God can request from me when He wants it or when He doesn't? This rock says, my life is for him. One more and we close. First Samuel 7. First Samuel 7, Samuel, the people of God have been up and down and up and down in their walk with the Lord. 
they've trusted the Lord, they've quit trusting the Lord, they come back and trust the Lord. And in this situation, they're in trouble. And they have set up an altar to the Lord in verse 1 of 7, appointed a priest, Eliezer. And in verse 6, they say this at the end of the verse, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. We may, he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered a loud thunder from the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone, this would be a gray stone, and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. I love this stone. The people of God are fragile. By the way, do you know how far you are away from being falling and making a disaster of your life? That far. I don't trust you, nor do I trust myself spiritually. I'm only where I'm at today by the grace of God. Because I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace, and I could sin and fall at any moment. Really, the people of God that are the most successful spiritual people are people who know how fragile they are. And in the prayer of the Lord to the disciples that they should pray, they would pray. The third request was, deliver us from evil. Deliver us. Why would a person pray that? Because he knows he's that close to it all the time. Wow. And these people recognize the people of God that we were in fragile condition. We can't defend ourselves. Cry out to God, Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord. <laughs> I love it. The Lord brought thunder and confused the Philistines. I was reading my Bible the other day. I wrote this in a receipt letter. Uh, the, Bible, the, Bible, the Lord said, I can whistle and the flies of Egypt will come to me. I got, That's pretty good. First of all, I don't want flies. And secondly, when I whistle, they don't come. But when God whistles, even the flies come. You see... Our victories, folks, are not because we're strong. It's because we're weak and we depend on God. Wow. When was the last time you set up a stone and said, God was my help. God delivered me. God helped me. God provided for me. Someone said, life is like climbing a steep mountain. And if you have these great stones set up, on your way down when you're slipping, you grab a hold of them. God help me here. God help me here. God help me here. I made my stand here. I met God here. 
Oh, God has been my help. In so many ways, in so many situations. I came with Baptist Church Planners 12 years ago. I really didn't know what God could do because in most of the time, and it's our responsibility to take care of ourselves, but there are times in our life when God puts us over our heads so that we can learn how great He is. Some of you may have lost your job. Some of you may be in dire straits. Now, I know you'll never rejoice over that. But if you will turn to God and cry to Him, He's going to show you that here He can provide for you in ways you cannot imagine. And you're going to be able to come back in here and say, God has been my help. And I'm setting an altar up to praise His name today, which is the praise of our lips. God takes care of people who trust in Him. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah will help you. What about these stones in your life? Do you remember that stone? I met God. Do you remember that stone where you took your stand and said, this is who I am and this is what I believe? Do you remember that stone where you said, I've lived my life, I'm involved in life, but I want to serve the Lord with my life. I want God to get all the glory and praise. I want to take a stand to let people know who I am. And then finally, do you remember a time when you set up a stone and said, God was my help. He met my need. Let's pray. When we preach the Word of God, we know God uses it. And this morning, I would like to ask you some questions. Can you remember that point where you met God? If you can't, right now is the time to meet Him. If you know you're a sinner, and everybody really knows it if they're honest, you know you're going to die and go to hell. You don't have to. Right here in this room, right here on this day, you can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Bible says, if you will call Him today, today is the day of salvation. I can't put words in your mouth. I can't put words in your heart and mind. But right there in your own seat, in the quietness of this moment, Call upon God. Admit your sinfulness. Recognize that He is the only righteous way you can get sin forgiven. And call upon Him to be your Father and Savior. And trust Him for eternal life. If you're here and you have called on the Lord, I'm not, I don't know your name. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to acknowledge that someone did that by a lift of his hand. Would you just slip your hand up and say, I just called upon the Lord. I just got saved just this, just this fast minute. Anybody here? Oh, amen, 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 amen. Praise the Lord. You just called on the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. How about it with you that haven't been baptized and you haven't made your stand? You're a believer, but 
nobody in the world and nobody else really knows about it. You've been a secret. But God wants you to put up your great stone and say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. Would you make a commitment this morning to follow through with baptism and church membership? Would you slip your hand up and say, Pastor, I'm going to follow through. I haven't been doing this. I need to get it done. I need to take my stand for Christ. Anyone? Slip your hand up. Okay, our third one. I live for the Lord. I, I know Him, but I've never... I, I've just been... God's been dealing with me about Him serving Him. I, I want to be a one-kingdom person. I, I want my... My job, my farm, I want my life, I want everything about me to be for the Lord. And maybe there may be some here that God's calling them to serve Him full time. Would you lose everything you have for Him? Would you say there's nothing dear enough in my life that I wouldn't forsake it to go and follow God any place on this earth? I will serve Him. I would just like to... See if there are any this morning that God's been working on to go into full-time ministry and you would serve the Lord. Would you slip your hand up and say, God's been working on our life. I don't know what He's going to do. Amen. 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 Every time I come to this church, I know God's working. And finally, you're in a difficult situation and this morning you recognized that God is your only hope. And this morning, you're not going to put your trust in men. You're going to put your trust in God. And with the anticipation that you're going to be able to put up a great stone and say, God was my help. If you're here and you're in that dire situation, I want you to put your hand up because I want to pray for you. Amen. Amen. People, okay, people all over need... Need God to be their help. Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for those who raised their hand saying that they had put their faith in You this morning. Wow. Heaven's rejoicing right now because someone called on the name of the Lord to be saved. I pray for those that, Lord, need to take a stand, declare who they are. I pray for those that have said God is working in our life and we're willing to forsake all to follow the Lord if that's what He wants. Then I pray for these that are in bad situation. And they have made a decision this morning not to call upon man, but to call upon God to be their help. Lord, if You could bring the thunder out of heaven and confuse the Philistines, You can bring whatever You need to to bring help them in their time of need. Lord, we, we, we commit that to You on their behalf and for them. I ask that You would bless this church. Thank You for what You do here, and thank You for what You're doing today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.